If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today, we're recording from the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference here in San Diego, where I am excited and honored to talk with Dr. Paul Zak. Paul is a professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University and is ranked in the 0.3% of the most cited scientists with over 170 published papers and more than 19,000 citations to his research. Paul's two decades of research have taken him from the Pentagon to Fortune 50 boardrooms to the rainforests in New Guinea. Along the way, he has helped start a number of interdisciplinary fields, including neuroeconomics, neuromanagement, and neuromarketing. He's written three general audience books and is a regular TED speaker. His newest book, Immersion, The Science of the Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness, was released last fall, and it's really an extraordinary read. Paul is also a four-time tech entrepreneur. His current company, Immersion Neuroscience, is a software platform that allows anyone to measure what the brain loves in real time to improve outcomes in entertainment, education and training, advertising, and live events. You've likely seen him on Good Morning America, Dr. Phil, Fox and Friends, ABC Evening News, and his work has been reported in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Time, The Economist, Scientific America, Fast Company, Forbes, and various podcasts. Like, aren't you tired, That's too Paul? Much. You're That's like, too much. How do you do it all? <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tammy. Oh my gosh, we're so delighted to have you here and to really learn from you today. Thanks for being here. Of course. Yeah. So your book delves into the science of creating extraordinary experiences. Can you start by explaining what inspired you to explore this topic in the book Immersion? That's a great question. You've been to the DMV. Why isn't shopping on Fifth Avenue in New York or in Rodeo Drive, why isn't it fabulous? I live outside Hollywood. 80% of Hollywood movies have lost money for the last 80 years. How is that even possible? With all the people involved, all those smart people are trying their hardest, how come they lose money? So I think it's, I'm kind of a cheap bastard. And so I want to figure <laughs> out why are, they, why are we having bad experiences? How have we not learned? And I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is that we're asking people their opinions. Mm-hmm. I think it's the wrong question. Do you like this experience? Do you like this movie? Do you think this ad's going to be good or bad? It's the wrong question because what we really want to know is, does this experience shake up my brain so much that I want to do it again? I want to share it. I will willing to pay for this experience, right? That's what I really want to know. So we were funded by different departments of the Department of Defense to identify the signals in the brain that would consistently and accurately predict what people would do after a message or an experience. So by doing this work, we identified what seems to be the brain's evaluation mechanism. So the book uses 50,000 brain observations to reverse engineer the process of creating an extraordinary experience. Amazing. Amazing. 
you mentioned the scientific formula for consistently creating extraordinary experiences. Give us a little glimpse into what that formula entails and how can our listeners apply it? And mostly our listeners are nonprofit professionals, fundraisers. How can we apply this formula? Right. So the formula came out of asking, when do people take an action after an experience? And a lot of the work we did was in the charitable donation space because we could see whether people responded to that charitable plea or not. So it helped us identify these brain systems that led to actions as opposed to, I like it or my feelings or, or something that doesn't predict behavior. So we've done a lot of work in the nonprofit space and basically are five components that you can think of as an algorithm that create an extraordinary experience. And they have the acronym SIRTA, S-I-R-T-A. So I'll go through those briefly. So first is called staging. First, create space in the brain so that people can have a great experience. Don't rush them. Make sure they relax. Just like we did here, Tammy, right? We sat down, we chit-chatted, had a cup of coffee. We just relaxed so yeah. that now when our conversation is happening, it's going to be more valuable. So set the stage. Number two is immersion. So the most effective way to sustain immersion is using a narrative arc. Full stop. Storytelling is what humans do. It's what we love. And that means I've got to introduce characters. I've got to have a mystery. I've got to have growing tension with authentic emotions. And then a resolution of that tension. Now, when that story illustrates a point that I want to communicate to an audience or an individual, and it tells the audience what to do, right? Do this action, donate to my charity, buy my product, and remember this information from a class. If it illustrates that point, then it's kind of monkey see, monkey do. If it's a sufficiently immersive story, and again, immersion is that valuation for the experience. If I, my brain values it enough, then I go, oh, holy crap. The humans apparently are supporting childhood cancer charities. I'm a human, I should probably do that. Yeah. So the I is for immersion. The R is for relevance. So there's not one perfect story. There's not one perfect experience, right? Craft that experience for the audience. So if I'm trying to sell diapers and you don't have little infants at home, might be a cute commercial, might have cute babies with big eyes, but it's not relevant to you. Yeah. So really think about crafting that narrative experience for the audience. The T is for target. So who are your super fans? Target those super fans because they are leveraged. They love this experience so much. They will tell others about it. They'll act on it they will help spread the word. So you've got to target them and ask them to help you. And lastly, the A insert is for action. When you have an immersion peak, that's when you want to have a call to action. So you've captured someone neurologically. You've captured them for a couple of minutes before this glow of immersion wears off. Make the ask. And if it's highly immersive, make the ask big. I think sometimes we're a little bit shy to ask for that $500, $1,000 donation. But if this person either by reading their body language, their eye contact, maybe they're tearing up when you tell them a story. When you've captured them, when you've immersed them in this, ask them for something big because it's valuable to them. And it gives them a chance to dissipate this highly costly metabolic state. I've really had a great experience. Think about crying in the movies. Of course, I've never done that, Tammy, but I've heard <laughs> that people, not. I've Some heard people that people do. cry. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting, right? Because you know it's a, a fictional story. You know, these are paid actors. You're aware you're in a movie theater. And yet at the end of the movie, when the boy dies, the girl dies, where we cry, right? That's really interesting. So an immersive story is similar. It doesn't have to be sad, but it's got to capture me emotionally. It's that emotional response 
that drives the action. So when I see an emotional peak, that's when I want to have the call to action, right? So oftentimes we tell the story, we have a nice narrative, we have an emotional peak, and then we resolve that. And now we've dissipated the immersion. So the call to action is going to be less effective. So a great example is a movie trailers. So next time you go to the movies, watch a movie trailer. What you'll see is that half of a narrative arc, right? There's introduced some characters. There's a kind of a crisis that crisis builds. And then peak immersion, got to buy a ticket to find out what happens next. So we should be doing the same thing from a fundraising perspective. We should be telling half of that narrative arc and tell the target audience or individual, hey, the story ends based on what you do. Yeah. Does this little child live or die? Do we cure cancer? Do we, whatever that fundraising target is, say, look, you need to be part of this story. This is really important. And you've seen how important it is. So don't just dissipate the story, finish your pitch, and then wait. You have to ask. And it's hard. It's really hard. I run a software company. I have to sell stuff all the time. It's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. So I've done it a million times, but I love what I created. And I think if people in the nonprofit world who have to fundraise, if they believe truly in their mission, that immersion contagion will infect the person you're talking to or the audience you're speaking to. So we have shown in published research that immersion is contagious. I'm really passionate about this. I can convey that to you, usually using storytelling so that you become passionate about this as well. Yeah. Brilliant. Super long. I'm sorry. No, it's, so it's like, okay, now how do I unpack all right. that? It's amazing. And you know, as someone who's been a fundraiser for more than 25 years, I, I can absolutely follow. And I see the importance of slowing down, yes, being intentional, having a strategy. So often we're running from this meeting to that meeting to this donor engagement, right? And eating lunch over our steering wheel. Right. And how can you possibly show up and be intentional and walk someone and through. be present. And really be yes, present. Yes. And to walk them through right. the before, the tension point, that immersive experience. And then to that moment of like, here's the call to action. Yeah, we need your help. And we need it now. Right. Yeah. That timing. That urgency. Yes. Right. So, which so, is, we know it's so important. So lots of tricks. So I just did it. I got a cup of coffee. Right. So I, that forces me now to slow down, to take a sip. And so I think first, you made a very good point, Tammy. First is prepare yourself. You've driven there in traffic. You want to make timing. Even if you're late, take three minutes and just compose yourself. And then I think it's so important to listen with your eyes. Make eye contact. You can touch appropriately, right? I can touch your arm. Or I can give you a hug if I know you. Yes. Right? All those things are really important. I say, look, we're together. We're part of the same community. So I'm going to give you the gift of my presence. Turn the phone off. Don't be looking at messages. Don't have it on the table, yeah. leave it, no. Oh, stick it in your purse or your wallet, right? Or yeah. pocket or whatever. Yeah. So really be there for that person and give them the gift of full attention, full emotional commitment, and really listen. I think a dear man who used to work for me, who was in enterprise software sales, told me something I think so profound. He said, if you're talking, you're not selling. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yes. So you have our little pitch, but I really need to listen and so I try to do the same thing as you said. I try to just shut the heck up and ask that person what they care about. And then, again, from a fundraising perspective, I may have five or six different stories that I may be able to slot into what this person cares about. Or, honestly, it's a small world. We all see each other. You know, I don't think this is the right time for you. I think I'd love to stay in touch with you. 
I don't think we have needs that are going to fulfill what you really care about. And there's great honesty in that. I've said that to a lot of people that I've pitched our software to. Do you know what? I don't think we're actually a good fit for you. I think here's some other people you might want to talk to. Or, gosh, I think you know what you're doing so well. You don't really need our help. And that's okay. Yeah. What happens is you create super fans that go, oh, Tammy, she's the most honest fundraiser I've ever seen. But I have a friend that really cares about, I don't know, childhood cancer. Yes. Right? And I'll connect Tammy to my friend who has the ability to give and is very interested in this because his child, his nephew is whatever, you know, separate from this. I love that example because it really demonstrates that I'm here to create a values match. I'm not just here to get a gift, right. like one and done and I'm out. And, you know, we've heard the stories where someone writes kind of a generous go away check. Right. Right. Just don't come back. And that is not what we're up to. We're about really partnering, about philanthropy, about long-term relationships to move the needle on the causes that we mutually care about. So I love that point, like being transparent, being honest, and letting your integrity lead the conversation. And there's all kinds of studies. I'm sure you've seen them. You've probably written some of them. <laughs> and that is that trust in the nonprofit sector has been nosediving, mm -hmm. right? It's gone down statistically like 3% since the beginning of the pandemic. Wow. It's really disturbing. And I think part of it is that we don't have the courage to say, we're not a fit, but you know what? I want to introduce you to someone with your permission. Right. Right. And to, as you said, when you demonstrate that kind of integrity and honoring the person, really hearing them, seeing them, valuing what they do care about, and instead of trying to get that quick gift, mm -hmm. then... The trust goes up, the referrals begin. Maybe they won't contribute or maybe they will, but right. they may refer. Yeah. And to your other point, your passion can be so contagious. People want to feel something these days, right? I think especially since the pandemic, I feel like people really, they want to feel something. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They want more purpose. And if you are demonstrating that, they might just think, I'll have what she's having, right? I want to learn more about that. You know, so what we found in the data is that when you add a social layer in person or virtually, it always increases immersion, always. Could be if I'm having a one-on-one, -on -one, say, with a wealthy donor, invite the spouse, invite the family members. Hey, you know, this is kind of a big decision, and we'd love to have more of that. What we see in the data is that if you have one person that gets on board, everyone tends to follow, even if it's a younger person sometimes. Like, Hey, granddad, you know, this is really important. And I think you should be doing this. Oh, much better than the fundraiser saying, hey, Mr. Smith, you should do this or Mrs. Smith. Yeah. Right. So think about adding that social layer in. Same thing with fundraising events. You know, one-on-one, -on -one, taking a donor to lunch, awesome, or a potential donor. Having an experience, right? Creating a event that they wouldn't normally have or bringing around their peers to do something together generally much more valuable. And we've all seen this, if you've ever been at a, like a timeshare pitch, you know, sure. they plant someone in there like, I'm going to sign up. But think about mixing up a potential donor with some actual donors, right? Great way to just have that kind of peer contact where you can just say, hey, this is Bob Jones. And I think you'd really like him and just introduce you guys. You're in related fields or whatever. And I've said anything, right? And again, there's no brainwashing here. There's no manipulation. Your donor prospect knows exactly he or she went to the event because they're interested in giving to you. Sure. Right? They're busy. Everyone's busy. So they know what's going on. And they're pretty sure that, you know, Bob Jones is a donor to your cause. It's okay. 
right? They're looking for, as you said, for an experience. They want to be embedded in community and that social group. And so give them the option. As long as you give people a chance to say no, they're not, you know, cognitively impaired in some way. They don't have a dementia or something. We know that's just morally wrong. And by the way, those gifts are going to be recalled anyway. So let's not yeah. be in that world. But, you know, create that experience for them with a social layer so they feel like, oh, I'm part of this community. A lot of universities do this very well with alums, I see. I was at Florida State University a couple of years ago, and oh, gosh, they love the stadium, and every seat, every booth's got a name on it, you know? Yeah. Some alumnus, some are corporations. I was giving a talk, and they trotted me out there to show me how many famous people have contributed to this ginormous football stadium. Oh, they love their athletic programs. They do. And so it's that love that, again, is that sort of contagion, mm. you know, like, hey, yay, football, thanks for the tour of your giant stadium. I don't really care, to be honest. I'm there to give an academic talk. It gives that contagion effect when I see those names, and maybe I recognize a couple of those names, like, oh, those are one of my peers. Yeah. Or people I would aspire to be peers with. And so... Yeah, there's yeah. I, that. Want, I want to join the club. Yes, yes. I want to be part of that and community. And we're very clubby. We're, we're a social species. We need to be embedded in environments in order to thrive. Family, friends, work, and communities of care. And I think there's something so beautiful in experiments we run where people watch a video and we're measuring their brain activity, we're taking their blood, whatever, and they still donate money. We're sort of torturing them in a way. <laughs> and we're compensating them with some modest amount of money. Yeah. But they'll still donate that money to a charity. So it's beautiful. I think it tells us over you know, 20 years of doing this research that human beings are really caring creatures. If you can create the environment for them to express, almost everybody will do it. Not everybody. And again, if you're having a bad day, if you're tired, you're hungry, it's just not a good day for you. It's okay. Because we've been there. You've been there. I've been there. Absolutely. I've, I've been cranky sometimes. And then you got to go back and apologize to your family or friends or whatever. That's okay. Donors will do that too. They have bad days. Yeah. Doesn't mean you failed. It just means they could have a bad day. Yeah. You know, some are just cranky bastards. We don't <laughs> want to see them again. We, we can spend our time doing something else. But I think generally what we see in the data measuring brain activity is that even people who behave badly are generally good people having bad days, mm -hmm. generally high levels of stress, some kind of factor that they may not tell to us, but we're seeing that in the brain activity that they're just not able to focus on this. It's just not a good time. Yeah. So walk away, thank them, give give them uh, your card, and and then, you know, chalk it up to, hey, this wasn't a good time for, for Mrs. Jones. Sure. In your work, in your research, do you see a distinction in these immersive experiences with extroverts versus introverts? Great question, Tammy. Good neuroscience question. You would think extroverts would be more immersed, and we don't find that, which is interesting. So I'm an introvert, but I play an extrovert on TV or on a <laughs> podcast like this. What we do find is that individuals who by personality are more agreeable and more empathic are more immersed. They're warmer. These are people. And they are just more immersed, more emotional about every experience. So it's the agreeable, empathic people that actually we kind of want to target because they're going to get this immersion contagion much more rapidly. The nice thing about that is agreeable and empathic people tend to have more friends. By the way, they're also happier and live longer. So, you know, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but they have a lot of friends. So if I can, quote, infect one person for my cause, and that person is empathic and agreeable, often they will share that information with somebody. Hey, guess what? I just donated to this amazing charity. You know, I thought I'd donate money to my university, but I found out about Charity X. And you know what? X is really changing lives. 
And I really thought I have enough accumulated wealth. I think I'll give it to X. So that's what humans do. We chat. We're, yeah, we're we chatty species. And so we want to find that kind of super fan that will help spread uh, the news to others. So again, you can find these individuals, first of all, how much they talk. Again, I'm faking it because I'm really an introvert. You'll be exhausted tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, you see people who are very warm. They have a lot of friends around them. My wife is one of these. She knows everybody. Where you know, I can sit in my lab for 12 hours. I'll talk to anybody and actually be fine. <laughs> Maybe I'll make a phone call at the end of the day. But so find these people who are, who are kind of read that, who are really warm, who really want to be helpers and ask them to help. So one of the things that we, I think we've missed on the fundraising and for immersive experiences in general is that these super fans for your experience, it becomes part of their personality, right? It's important enough to them that they want to share it with others. And you can ask for that referral. Like not only did you donate, hey, we're so happy and that $5,000 gift is going to do some amazingly good work. Would you have two friends that you think I should talk to? Yeah. Right? So they're already turned on about this experience, right? So why not ask? Now, what it does for the fundraiser is clear, but what it does for that individual who has given is give him or her additional credibility within that community, right? So I'm in a retirement home. I've just made this nice gift to a charity. Hey, now I've got something to talk about with my friends at lunch or dinner. Yeah. You know, I made this. And by the way, I think, you know, you should probably talk to them too. That's wonderful. So think about using this contagion effect to benefit. Again, we want to make sure people have a chance to say no, no coercion, right? There's yeah. no, no, brain no pressure. Yeah, no pressure, but here's an opportunity for you to join our community. Mm -hmm. I think that's the way to think about it as yeah. community building. Yeah, I love that. And is it safe to assume then, too, the act of sharing the message, the story, the come join me, please learn more. I'm so interested. I'm so committed. It's affirming of my identity as the person sharing that message that I'm a caring human. I care about this cause. I care about children with cancer or seniors who have memory care issues. Absolutely. Right? So Very a great example is uh, Bill Gates. Mm. So Bill Gates in the 90s, if you remember, Microsoft was being sued uh, by the Department of Justice of being a monopoly. He, he has Asperger's for sure. And, you know, he was just aggressive and not very nice. No one liked him. And then he resigned as CEO. He became a philanthropist. And now he's kind of beloved, right? He's giving a lot of money away for tuberculosis and malaria and other kinds of things. And he ch changed his profile by being a more caring person, at least in behavior, if not in personality. Actually, I have met him and he's fine in person. So um, not that I know him that he's either learned or gotten better or just maybe relaxed a little bit. And so, again, I think, again, for fundraisers, when we see people who are not very nice to us, really think about tolerance. Think about when we have had bad days or bad weeks or bad months. We don't know what that person's going through. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. What we find, again, in the data is around 5% of the individuals we measure neurologically in experiments are behaving badly. They don't cooperate. They don't play nice with others. They lack empathy. And about two of that 5% are just kind of bad people. They have psychopathic traits. They're just, you want to cut them loose. The other 3% are people who are good people having bad days and usually it's high levels of stress. Mm -hmm. So really think about, even though someone may not be nice to you, coming back and just checking on them. Again, as you said, Tammy, relationship building. Hey, we talked last month, Mr. Smith. Just want to see how you're doing. Are you okay? Yeah. Seems like you were having a little bit of a tough time. Anything I can do to help you? Gosh, wouldn't that be nice to get a phone call? Whoever you are. Yes, you know? indeed. 
I have been in those situations too, where maybe there is a scheduled donor visit. You arrive, maybe you have a board member or another peer with you. And that individual just seems off that day. And to pause and say, is today still a good time? Right? Like I care about you Mm -hmm. more than my agenda. Right. And I think that does, like it just deepens that relationship. If you would, talk to us a little bit about this concept of immersion and how it intersects with happiness, the source of Mm -hmm. happiness. Thank you for that great question. So this, I think, is so relevant for fundraising. We have found in research is that when we have extraordinary experiences, something that's really valuable to us, and giving to charity could be one of those things where it's a big, if it's a big gift, it's a big decision. And it's a big gift relative to their means, right? To their means, absolutely. A big gift could be $500. Could be $500 for someone who's- It could be $50 Exactly right. So now you've created this experience. We- Established. You've embedded them in this new community, a community of caring, a community of people who want to improve the world, help individuals. And when we have enough of these extraordinary experiences, they kind of stretch our brain so that it trains us to be more open emotionally, more present. And so when we stack up enough of these extraordinary experiences, we see that people who consistently volunteer, who give to charity, who give money, who give goods, who give time, actually are happier, they're more satisfied with their lives. There's evidence that they live longer, they have more friends. So somehow they have trained themselves, trained their brain to be, if you will, better social creatures, better human beings, more likable. As you know, a couple months ago, the Surgeon General came out with his report on loneliness. One third of Americans report that they do not have anybody they can call if they were lonely. Think how devastating that must be to be one of these individuals, if we can embed them in community, even if they're just making a very small gift, they get to come to the donor event, right? We're helping them be part of that experience. And in doing so, we're making them acutely happier right now, but also, again, helping them train to be better connectors. By the way, the hook is, and I don't know if you've ever done this, animals, dogs are the best. So we've actually studied animal-human relationship, cats, dogs, goats, a couple others I can tell you about, but dogs are the best. And so I wonder if you've ever thought about taking a dog to a fundraising trip or to an event. Oh my gosh. Who doesn't love a dog? Right. Leader dogs for the blind, like they are brilliant at this, but thinking outside the box, we totally could. You could do that. A really nice golden retriever or something. And again, taking it to someone's house is a little different, but I once advised a, probably NDA, a bit of a dusty hotel chain whose name may start with an H. And they said, what can we do to make this a more immersive experience? And I gave them a whole bunch of crazy ideas. And that's why we have academics or crazy idea people. And I said, you know, if you put a dog in the lobby, when I'm traveling, I'm tired, been on an airplane, now I'm in a taxi or Uber, I got to get here. I see a nice, friendly dog in the lobby or even take that dog for a walk. How can you not be happy? Yeah. You know, so... Anyway, just a pro tip maybe for uh, something a little outside the box for listeners. Dogs are really extraordinary. I think it's the best example of humans playing God. You know, I said, how would I make the most wonderful human ever? Well, it'd always be happy to see you. It'd be friendly. It's wag its tail. You know, no matter, kick a dog and it still loves you, right? So, so loyal. Don't kick dogs. So but, loving. Yeah. So, you know, maybe that helps us also be better connectors. We have this talk. So I have a hundred pound German shepherd, male. He'll bite you if you're out of my house, but he's a sweetheart outside. I was at Starbucks recently and having just a meeting, coffee meeting. And let me tell you, every one of the 
you know, 21, 22 year old women who worked at Starbucks individually came out. Can I pet your dog? Yes. No, it's a big dog. I'm a big guy. I'm old. I, they're not there to see me. Okay. It's the dog. The dog is irresistible. Yeah. So why not think, I'm just thinking kind of, you know, radically outside the box. Yeah. You know, that dog is really perfect. And so could be a hook, could be a, certainly as a conversation starter. Absolutely. You know, I think that some of the best stories and experiences around donor engagement have been something simple. And I learned this during COVID. Like, let's just take a walk. Let's be in nature and walk and talk about the work and talk about your life and what's going on. But again, whether it's the dog or it's nature, these immersive experiences that I think open us up, that let us showcase and connect with kindness, that have us feel in awe. Right. Right. Really powerful. There's some interesting evidence that I was very skeptical of over the role of nature at kind of opening us up to being more present. I think it's now kind of compelling. So I think that walk would be also a great idea. And hey, take a walk with your dog. You know, <laughs> Two for one. Yeah. And also <laughs> with nice about dogs is you can talk to a dog and not be a crazy person, right? So this is true. Yeah. These are all experiments. Nobody knows much about anything. We're all just trying things. So for listeners, I would love to know. They can email you, Tammy, or something. Sure. You can tell me. Um, if I took a dog to an event, a sweet, nice dog, would it be possible? So we actually did a study of a therapy dog going to retirement homes mm. and showed that not only was there an immersive experience for the dog handler, but also for the residents. These are sort of semi-ambulatory older individuals, sort of, sort of kind of struggling. Some, some have memory issues. And what was interesting is that the service provider, the in this case, a woman who was bringing her therapy dog out, she got so much value from this. So again, it embedded her in community, and I'm going to suppress her name, but uh, she's a journalist and kind of an introvert, kind of works too much like a lot of us. And this was something she did for herself mm. to embed her in community. And, you know, she got so much value out of it, both on self-report, but also just neurologically, that she was showing kindness to others. And we all need that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Can you share a specific example of an everyday situation that could be transformed from ordinary to extraordinary using the insights from your book. And honestly, I think about work we're coming up on the holidays and some people are dreading like Thanksgiving dinner, mm -hmm. right? They're dreading coming back together with family because of tensions or whatever it is. How can we take those experiences, the fears, and really be intentional about transforming them into something extraordinary? For ourselves, but also for the other people yeah. involved. Oh, boy, that's a big one. So let's think about <laughs> holidays. I think they'll narrow the field a little bit. What we find, again, I want to argue from the data and not from my opinions. I think that's much better. Is that, again, we want to create that sort of safe space. We call that psychological safety. So the humans can give us lots of joy. We can be in community. We can do cool stuff together. And they can drive us batty, right? We're aware of yes. that. So the first is to create that space. And that could be rather than rush to dinner at whatever, five o'clock for Thanksgiving or Christmas, is slow down a little bit. Hey, guys, we're not show up at three o'clock. Show up when you want. And we're going to have some drinks, so a little bit of alcohol, maximum two drinks. It's actually relaxing. And so beyond two, be a bad behavior. So we're going we're gonna to have a little, we'll have eggnog or whatever that is. And so really, again, setting the stage, slow it down a little bit. The second is, if we give people assignments, they tend to follow through. So our assignment for Thanksgiving dinner is bring the weirdest experience you had in the last year since our family was all together. 
what's the most fun you had traveling or a story about a weird person. So what I'm doing now is I'm guiding you to do something that's fairly neutral, but also interesting. We'll give you a chance to open up and now we can talk to you rather than talking about politics or wars or whatever, which yes. is all important. I'm not saying it's not. Right. But Thanksgiving is really about family and building those loving ties. So think about orchestrating or curating this experience so that people have an assignment. So I will do this even like happy hour with my friends. I think these, I haven't seen my friends in six weeks. And so I'll sort of think of some provocative questions to kind of orchestrate that experience. By the way, all my friends are nerds and introverts, so you know, I have to help them open up a little bit. And then lastly, I think is being able to say no, right? We go into, people are yelling at each other, go, you know what, this is not good. So let's just not do this. So take a walk, go home if you need to. Yeah. This is, you know, this is time for, for care and affection. And I think it's difficult for all of us. Again, we all have bad days. Doesn't mean these are bad people. Just means they're not kind of getting along the way they should. And I think if you're organizing that experience, it's like a donor. There's some donors that are just not worth it, right? Just like some customers for a business. You do want to fire customers and fire donors. Yeah. You can f temporarily, I guess, fire family members and say, you know what, Uncle Joe, you've had too much to drink. It's time for you to go home. We're going to yeah. call you an Uber. Yeah. You got to go. This is not good. And my family, no. So again, I think you have to decide if you're the organizer, you have to sort of take charge of that. I think being too passive, sure, everyone has their quirks. What I'm hearing is some guardrails, some boundaries, some clarity, which is a real issue in the fundraising profession. There are a lot of fundraising professionals who report like feeling sexually harassed, for example. Uh -huh. Talk about boundaries, right? And feeling like, gosh, I'm going to risk losing this donor. I'm going to risk losing their support and the impact on the children or the impact on the seniors. Right. Oh my gosh, like how do I navigate this? And so you're giving a framework for that. And what I also love is you're giving a framework for, again, small gatherings with donors, whether it's, you know, the parlor visits, so to speak, where maybe one donor is hosting a few other supporter couples. You're invited to talk about the mission, maybe to give an update. But I love that you're saying, like, let's orchestrate a conversation, not a full-blown agenda, because we're relaxing, we're having a cocktail, we're being right. social, but almost maybe in even in a Jeffersonian dinner kind of way, we're posing a few questions or we're stating here was one of the biggest challenges that we're facing as an organization or the people that are participating in our programs are facing. Let's just dialogue about that, potential mm -hmm. solutions. What could we do? Sometimes even an outside speaker can kind of prompt that kind of discussion. Yes. So let's talk about Ukraine. So we have an expert, I'm just making this up now, an expert on uh, international relations and our charity uh, supports, let's say, children in need. Well, Ukraine's interesting. It's in the news and yeah. it's hard to know kind of what to think about it. And so we're going to talk about Ukraine. We're going to invite our donors and donor prospects. And then we're going to talk about the children in Ukraine who are suffering and what we're doing on the ground to help them. Okay, that's a nice segue. So now Absolutely. you create a community. As you said, we have guardrails. You said it so much more eloquently than <laughs> me. So thank you for doing that. And then we also have a, a chance to get involved and actually help. And again, from a human perspective, we are helping creatures, right? That's how we embed ourselves in communities. That's how we thrive. That's how we're happy, how we live longer lives. Yes. Um, so I live in a the only blue zone in the United States, which is a city called Loma Linda, California. And it's a blue zone where people regularly live past 100. 
because it's a company town, the company is a hospital and the hospital is run by Seventh-day Adventists, of which I'm not one, but they don't drink, don't smoke, they're vegetarians, they exercise, and they tend to be in helping professions. So it's kind of the golden set of things to do. Exactly. But it's the helping part that sustains them when they retire. So again, they tend to be good on diet and exercise. So really think about creating opportunities for volunteerism. It doesn't have to be money, right? It could be helping out. It could be showing up. So I think, you know, at at many charities and certainly universities, they think of donors as money only. But Mm -hmm. how about helping? How about being on the phones? How about interacting with the students? Thought leadership, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. For people who have had these extensive careers, come in and advise us half a day a week. We'd love to have you here. So I think there's lots of ways you can do this, but it's really about community building, as you said, relationship building. Yeah, I love that. And I'm a big believer that people love to share whatever they have in abundance. For some, it is money. And for some, it's time. For some, it's specific expertise. For some, it's a wide network. And for many, it's a combination of these things. So I love what you're saying. Like that we create community by inviting people to share what they have in abundance. And sometimes asking for expert advice or time does lead to, fi- lead to financial support as well. Fantastic. We and need that too. Always getting the feedback from the donor representative, right? Yes. You're getting it from people that you're helping. So just as, a, as an example of that, I recently started volunteering. I do a lot of hiking with my dog. And to help clear the trails. And so I'm driving this tractor thing, you know, clearing the trails. And I would stop when there were hikers or bikers. Every one of them stopped and thanked me. I didn't know if, I thought maybe I work here. Like, but everyone was so nice. I'm like, oh, I get it. Sure. Like, okay, now I want to do more of this. Not only do I feel useful as a human, all these other people are recognizing me for volunteering three years, three hours (laughs) of my life, one weekend. Yeah. But you feel seen. Yeah, you feel seen well put. Yeah, mm. exactly right. Mm. And there's, a again, that contagion effect like, oh, I like this. I think I'll do it again. Yeah. And maybe even invite a friend because they would enjoy it too. Mm, even better. Like I'm it. learning so much from yeah. you. <laughs> All right. In your 20 years of neuroscience research, what are, were some of the most surprising or unexpected findings that led to a lot of the ideas that are presented in the book Immersion? Yeah, so the book is based on over 50,000 brain observations. So wow. we did that because we created a technology where we can infer brain activity for this neurologic state of called immersion, the value of my social-emotional experience, using data from smartwatches. And so we put on apps, and we have people using it commercially, movie studios, TV networks. So we have a ton of data. So I think your question is so apt because most neuroscientists don't have 50,000 brain observations. No one does, I don't think. I think the most interesting thing is that people are weird. I know, shocking. So I think this- I thought it was just me. (laughs) I I think the dirty secret in neuroscience is that when we look at research that looks at averages, here's the average brain activity. If we actually look at the distribution of that activity, the spread of brain activity, it's extremely wide. So more to the point, if we run an experiment, we're measuring brain activity and people do the same task, we measure brain activity from 50 people, we'll see five, six, seven different patterns of activity for people doing the same thing. It means the brains are working differently. So this is where the diversity in the way people process information, the way people behave comes from. Even though, you know, if you have a stroke and I see your deficit, I can tell you exactly where that stroke happened. When we're looking at kind of higher factors, how we enjoy the symphony or why I give to a, um, a charity after watching a video, people process that very differently. And so I think what I have learned and 
what I've tried to practice, particularly having worked with a lot of psychiatric patients, is that we're all weirdos <laughs> and we're not going to be inconsistent. And that's okay. It makes life very interesting. And so not to commit what's called the fundamental attribution error. So if I see you, Tammy, and you've always been nice to me, and then I see you once on the street and you're really nasty, I'm like, that Tammy's a terrible person. So that's the error, right? But I've seen you 20 times and you're always super nice. So why the 21st do I This jump? exception. So what I've done in... It's my own bias, but I think, oh, this poor person's having a bad day. And that's really what the data looked like, as I mentioned earlier. And so I think not only being tolerant of others' weirdness, but really accepting them for who they are makes life so much more pleasant, being generous in giving people the benefit of the doubt. The Dalai Lama said in something I read that we should not only tolerate difficult people, we should celebrate them because they give us a chance to practice true compassion. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? It is so, so beautiful. We really try to practice that. We're all suffering at some level, and we don't always show it, and we may act out because of it. Now, if you act out every time I see you, probably don't want to see you too much anymore, but giving people the benefit of the doubt. I had a colleague years ago who was just a very unhappy person and just personally attacked me for no good reason at all and was, was senior to me, and so it was just making my life difficult. And the more I interact with this person, I thought, oh, you know, he doesn't talk to his adult children. His marriage is kind of fraught. What an unhappy, sad person. I really got great compassion uh, for this poor individual. It was happening when he retired, to be honest with you. Um, but I thought, oh, this poor person is really suffering and behaves badly and inappropriately towards me. But it's not me, it's him, right? It's not that he hates me. It's that he's just internally unhappy. And I should not, even though I, at one point, would like to, you know, punch him in the face, <laughs> I should really treat him with compassion. Yeah. So I think that's the most important thing I've learned. Also, by the way, it's so much easier to go through life being generous and being compassionate and holding all that anger in. And anger ultimately is detrimental to yourself because you hold in that excess energy and stress. It's not good. Let it go. Yeah. It doesn't matter that much. There's some saying that something, I'll, I'll get it wrong, but the essence of it is being angry at someone is like drinking poison and thinking that they will die. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. So yeah. again, for, there are some people in our orbits who are just going to be consistently bad and we probably want to avoid them. But for most people, I think compassion is the right answer. And I think from a donor perspective, we see this as people age, the systems in the brain, sorry, always be the neuroscientist, but the systems in the brain that allow us to engage appropriately, begin to decline. We lose neurons as we age. And we see sometimes aggressive behaviors in older individuals who may be our donor prospects. And it's not them necessarily. It's that their brain has degraded and they're going to kind of come off as cranky. And are you going to treat them badly because they have a mild brain disorder or treat them with care and compassion? That's someone's grandfather, grandmother. And yeah, it's not super pleasant. It's not someone you want to hang out with every day. But I think understanding that this is a brain disorder as opposed to you're an evil person, it contextualizes it so it's easier to be compassionate. Yeah. I love your thought about just err on the side of generosity and compassion. It's better for them and it's better for us, right? Better all the way around. And if you're wrong, it doesn't cost you anything, right? All yeah. you say is, I was nice to this person. They were mean to me. Hey, things happen. What, you know, what can I do? Yeah. What are you going to Beat up some old person because they're not <laughs> nice to you? No, don't do that. Just walk away. Yeah, don't do that. One of the key aspects of your book is understanding why our brains crave the extraordinary. 
So could you kind of unpack the neurological and physiological mechanisms behind this craving? Gosh, yes. So the brain's a lazy organ (laughs) because it takes so much energy to run, maybe 20% roughly of your calories to run. So that high overhead means that the brain wants to idle most of the time. So I call this being in a rut. So these are manifested as habits. We have these habits that we do, the same thing over and over. It's really efficient neurologically. If I can get you out of that rut and create this extraordinary experience for you, the brain values this. It's really important. And it begins to rewire the brain. That's why this can lead to happiness. And so when we see these extraordinary experiences, these high immersion experiences, it helps the brain evolve. The term is is plasticity, neuroplasticity. It helps us change in ways that are generally positive for us. Now, we see this in trauma as well. So sometimes with trauma, not always, we see what's called post-traumatic growth. I'm in a car accident. I'm in a something terrible happens to me. It's me a chance to reevaluate and grow. So we see this in people who survive cancer, for example. They reevaluate their lives. They go, gosh, I've been working 80 hours a week for the last 30 years. I don't really like doing that because I can't say no. Hey, I have cancer or I maybe I my cancer is in remission. I've got to make some changes. So why aren't we all doing that, kind of reflecting on that? So I do think having a do not do list is very important. Mm. Focus your attention on what gives you the most pleasure. And these are generally extraordinary experiences. Doesn't mean you have to take up skydiving. Oh, skydiving super fun. You know, it does mean that you want to stretch yourself. And as I said earlier, when you do that with others, when you have that social layer, could be a romantic partner, could be friends. Having these extraordinary experiences are really important to the brain, good for brain health, but also just make us happier. Yeah. I love that analogy of like, we had, I had cancer and now I'm kind of resetting and reevaluating and being more intentional about how I live moving forward. How do you think the pandemic affected people? Do you feel like that in and of itself was a reset for people choosing how they want their life to be? For example, I don't want to work 80 hours a week anymore. Mm-hmm. I want to work a four-day week. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something completely different. Did you see anything in your research in the work that you do on a day-to-day basis uh, related to how the pandemic shifted our minds, our brains? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's upsides and downsides. What we did see is a demand for greater autonomy for both work and life. I'm going to make some more intentional decisions. For example, people refusing at Apple and Google, people refusing to go back to the office. So they said January 2023, we want everyone back. And they said, no, not doing it. They're like, oh, that's right. We can't really force you to do that. Unemployment's super low anyway. And so I think that empowering individuals to control their work lives is really important. The downside is greater isolation. So I think we did see, particularly with more people working at home, a lack of that really most valuable experience many of us have, which is being on a team, seeing people in person, you know, so nice we can do this podcast in person, Tammy, as opposed to, you know, over Zoom or, Zoom or something, yes. right? And so it's just much more fun, right? Yeah. And so I think it's incumbent on employers to think about the office as a social emotional hub where the cool stuff's happening and great conversations are occurring and it's fun to be here. And I'm definitely into bribing people like pay for lunch. How about Friday pizza and beer at 5 p.m. or, you know, encourage people to come back to the office. I don't think we should force them. But I think we've seen this increase in loneliness partially because of the pandemic where we just feel like, I don't 
be around people. By the way, I thought handshaking would just disappear after the pandemic. I thought, well, never, because COVID is always going to be with us now. I thought, oh, people, everyone shakes hands now. So and, and handshaking hugs. and hugs. Hug. Nice I to meet you. Hugs are safer than handshakes. Yes. At least I'm not sharing whatever gross stuff's on my hands. So <laughs> it just, I think it, that tells us that we have this strong desire to connect to others. And so volunteering, awesome. Donating, awesome. We should encourage more of that. But recognize that we need to be physically around others. And so again, Mm -hmm. we're back to building community. Yeah. And I love that. And I think there's huge implications for fundraisers who are often convening, whether it's a large scale event or more intimate gatherings of major donors or longtime donors or any particular group of supporters that, you know, have shared values and, and characteristics that they can feel socially isolated too. And maybe just maybe they're more inclined to meet with us than they ever have been before. Could be. Again, it's kind of like going back to beginner's mind. Just because we had a hard time getting visits prior to the pandemic, maybe we should just try again. Absolutely. And what's the worst case? They say no. Exactly. That's okay. And some will say yes. So there was some research uh, recently from Microsoft that said this was for B2B sales that there were an average of five no's before you got a yes. So I think for fundraising, it's got to be similar. So lots of no's, as long as you're not a pain in the butt, like, hey, we have this new program, just want to let you know about it. Yeah. And if you have time, we're having an event next week and love to have you come out. Or maybe next week's too soon, but you know, next month and we have a place saved for you. We'd love to know if you can come. Yeah. Well, that sounds nice. Yes. Sometimes I might, I might no means come. not right now. Not right now. But exactly, it could mean right. yes later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great point. Your book discusses how specific principles like immersion offers clear instructions and examples for creating amazing experiences. What advice would you give to individuals looking to apply those principles? So what are the principles and what advice would you give to fundraisers applying those principles for creating amazing experiences? So I think the the algorithm is that CERTA algorithm I went through. So staging, immersion, target, relevance, and action. And also getting some feedback on that. So oftentimes, I think the nice thing about having software to measure immersion as opposed to our intuition is that I'm creating experience for my prospect group. I think it's going to be great because I have expertise, I'm trained, and, and my friends help me or my colleagues help me. But it doesn't mean it's going to work, right? So really getting that feedback any way you can. It might be in the number of donors you got or number of people that signed up to help or whatever that is. But I think having really clear metrics is re- important. And I think at least in my experience in fundraising, it's increasingly important to measure whether we're having an impact or not. And and also talking to people. You know, I think donors that are very activated by an experience, again, they're your super fans. Find out why this works so well for them and really engage them in co-creation of the next event. First of all, it's just a smart way to, to get better, but also it helps them feel like they're part of the solution that you're creating. So I think, yeah, and I think mixing it up a little bit is also good. I think sometimes, at least in the charities involved in my university and others, we see kind of the same thing over. And how about something weird and crazy? And maybe some people don't like it, but some people do. I love it. I love it. And maybe, just maybe you'll attract a whole nother group who just didn't engage previously. Yeah, exactly right. Now, we don't want to isolate, make uncomfortable our kind of core donor group. Of course. they don't need to come, right? So maybe we have a group, something new for younger people. We have a music festival. We have a whatever that is. 
so that we engage people who are not generally in the donor pool. And maybe again, as you said, Tammy, maybe they give $50 or $100. Hey, that's great. Now we're establishing this habit of giving. So the benefit of this lazy brain I've talked about is that once we have established this habit, we kind of stick with it. And so, hey, I'm happy to get a $50 annual donation for the next 40 years from a recent alum. That's not bad. That's not bad at all, which will likely produce a legacy gift at some point, hopefully far into the future. Yeah, it's a long game, right? So establishing these habits, or it could be again just helping out. Awesome. So finally, the most important takeaways from this conversation, from the book immersion, from the session that you and Frankie led earlier today here at the Nonprofit Storytelling Conference, what are the key takeaways, the most important things our listeners need to know? I think successful donor experiences are about love. You gotta love the charity you're working for, the experience, the problem you're trying to solve. It's gotta be important to you and you've gotta find the people who love it as well. And that love is social, it's part of the community. And so once we really think about this as establishing loving pathways, I mean, this in the philia sense, right? That we're, we care enough about this emotionally that we're willing to invest our time, our resources, help our friends. If you can create an experience with love, then it's gonna be a successful experience. Yeah. And love is authentic and people feel authenticity. Right. So beautiful. Thank it. You cannot. You got to love it. Yes. Thank you. So amazing. What a pleasure. If you want to learn more about Paul, his work, and his latest book, Immersion, we've included links in the show notes as well as links to the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransformed.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.